That's what technology is doing is freeing us from drudgery. So we should celebrate these things. Yeah, I mean, my vision for AI, like people have different things about, oh, there's Terminator. But like think of Tony Stark in the Iron Man movies, have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's talking, was it called Jarvis? Like the Jarvis, thing that's, yeah. when he's like how much more productive he is in creating stuff right. because he's got this AI that's helping him. Yeah. You know, and it's like that's what people in the not too distant future can be doing in their own homes. It, like I say, just like the stuff that, this guy in my company was showing me like it was just doing research and we're like it's it's next level yeah about it's like having a bunch of assistants working for you yeah that's incredible hey everybody welcome to the what is money show i am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them. As again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Bob Murphy, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for having me, Robert. Glad to be here. Great to have you again, uh, this time in person. Yeah. Um, First time? I think, yeah. All the other ones are yeah. by Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. We're in London for the ARC event, the inaugural ARC event. Um, been quite interesting so far. And um, just by way of quick introduction for my audience that might not know you, you are an Austrian economist. You're the author of several economics textbooks, and you're also the chief economist of Infinio. Um, and as we were talking offline, preparing for this conversation, you said that you recently wrote, uh, I think it's called Understanding Money Mechanics. Yeah, something you wrote for the Mises Institute. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us just a little bit about what that book is and what the intended purpose of it is? Sure. So it's you know free online PDF as all the Mises publications are, and it's just supposed to be a primer for, as the title suggests, understanding money and banking basically, and mm. and and you know how in the modern world do banks create money, 
And then, of course, it gets to the central banking and cryptocurrency and things like that, a lot of related topics. But basically, to take someone who knows nothing about money and banking and to bring them up to speed. Yeah. So the last time you were on the show, we talked about your book, Choice, mm -hmm. which was making human action more accessible, which is uh, Mises's masterpiece. Right. This book is sort of doing that for uh, the the mysteries of money and banking, something like that, and trying to make it, when you say it's a primer, so it's yeah. something very accessible. Yeah, yeah, so definitely accessible to, I, I would say, an undergraduate for sure, yeah. an undergraduate or above. Um, yeah, so the difference, choice, like you say, there I was literally going through chapter by chapter of Mises' human action and trying to distill it down. Here, a lot of the standard insights that are in like Rothbard and Mises in terms of money and banking are in understanding money mechanics, but I just started from scratch and did it topically. It's not that I was taking another book and trying to Got it. make it simpler. Got it. That sounds interesting. So I have to start with a very obvious question, mm -hmm. the namesake of the show. Sure. You wrote the, the piece, right? Understanding money mechanics. Can we talk about the nature of money itself? What, sure. in your opinion, Bob, is money? So I come out of the Austrian school tradition. And so there I use the standard definition, uh, which is to say money is, it's a medium of exchange that is commonly, or sometimes they say universally accepted. Mm -hmm. And so the the term medium of exchange, I, I was talking with some people recently, I realized that in legal terms, sometimes they use a different definition, but what economists mean to say something as a medium of exchange means that you take it in exchange intending to trade it away again in the future. Mm. And so just like, Air is a medium through which sound waves travel here. That good is the medium through which the other exchanges get affected. Mm. And so it's like you're really selling your labor in order to buy the car, but you don't do it in one transaction. You sell your labor to this guy over here to then get the money to then go buy the car. Mm. So the money is the medium of the exchange. And so then if there's a, a particular good that most people in the given community accept in that fashion, that means it's commonly accepted and that's what money is mm. it's fascinating i think this is what makes it difficult to talk about actually because mm -hmm. it has this linguistic character yeah right like the sort of like words are a medium of exchange through which human conceptions propagate yep yep right we're running software we both run the same software so we can communicate money is like that medium of exchange through which i don't know the consequences of human action are propagating right we're, we're the market is telling us through prices what people want, what people don't want, and to what degree. Something like it. Is that what makes money difficult to understand? Is that it has this language-like quality? I never thought of it like that, but yeah, I think you're definitely right. I did notice when you try to pin down, like for the question, I'm sure it comes up a lot mm -hmm. on your show, is like, oh, is Bitcoin money? Mm -hmm. And so if I just try to do it real mechanically and say, well, is it a medium of exchange? Clearly it is. Mm -hmm. Lots of people sell you know real goods for portions of or, or multiple units of bitcoins not because they're going to eat the bitcoins or use it to produce something physically but right. they're just going to trade it away so clearly it's a me of exchange but then you say is it commonly accepted and you're right that's a little bit odd because in one sense there's millions of people around the world who accept it so hey that's a lot more than accept you know if you find some small group somewhere and they have their like shells as money for their tribe yeah more people accept bitcoin than there but yet, since the people who accept Bitcoin are spread all over the place and in their day-to-day -day lives, it's not that they can get most of their transit. That's So you're right. There is a sort of like a, a cultural or sociological element to it, 
even just to figure out is the definition satisfied right and then like you said on top of all that i think it's because money does a lot a lot of things and so it's hard to distinguish like what's the definition of what it is versus what is it doing right and so yeah that definition which i, I very much appreciate mm -hmm. universal medium of exchange is essentially saying that whatever is the most widely accepted form of money is money right um and the problem with that in my mind is well then we're saying okay the u.s dollar is money and the U.S. dollar is money, but it it also has these weird shortcomings. Mm. Right? That it's not. I would say the U.S. dollar is not a final extinguisher of debt. Actually, that you always have this liability attached to it. That if you're if you're saving in dollars, you have counterparty risk in the Federal Reserve, for instance. So I don't. Maybe liability is the wrong term here, but you can't have this pure bearer asset, which is what mm. money emerged as on the market as we had with gold. So it's. It's a strange kind of conundrum. It's like, if you just say it's the widely accepted medium of exchange, well, then you go, okay, the dollar is money, but then the dollar is very imperfect as money. Right. So you get into this other debate about, well, is it market money or political money? So um, I don't know if you... Yeah. So yes, and actually just to, to be honest, you're right. Like I've grappled with, you know, there's the famous exchange when Ron Paul's interview or questioning Ben Bernanke and asked mm -hmm. him, is gold money... And Bernanke's given a real whirly answer to try to fend them up. And, but you, but yeah, in a strict sense, using the definition I just used, you'd have to argue the US dollar is more money now for Americans than gold is. Mm -hmm. Even though, of two things, one is just the desirability that you're right. I think gold is a way better money than the US paper dollar is. And on top of that, historically, as you well know, and your audience says too, I'm sure, it's not that people just, Americans just decided, well, you know what? I would prefer to use greenbacks rather than go, like they were literally forced to. The bait and so, so, so yes, having said all that though, it, it is like a lot of, uh, certainly Austrian monetary theory is built on that framework. And so I think the way I would handle what you're saying is to say, yes, right now the US dollar is money for a lot of people on planet earth, even though it's a very bad money. Mm -hmm. They just, you know, like you could say, what's the definition of art? And there'd be a lot of stuff that you would not think was good art, but you couldn't deny, well, given that that's a definition, yes, that painting is art, even though I think it's terrible. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So we get the banana duct taped on the canvas, and that's <laughs> no art, which might be related to fiat. It could be, yeah. yeah. At least you could eat the banana. <laughs> um, okay, so the other thing, all right, one other point on money, I guess. The other way that I think is useful to think about it, mm -hmm. I don't know if you talked about this in the book or not, but that money is more of an attribute rather than any specific thing. Mm -hmm. So this would be, I, I guess, drawing on Minger, right? That every asset that's trading in an economy has some degree of moneyness. Okay. Which would be that that uh, monetary premium that's assigned to an asset when people acquire it and intend to trade it rather than mm -hmm. consume it or mm -hmm. use it as capital on some production process. And that demand that's being registered for the asset that's not intended to use the asset, but rather to trade it as a monetary premium or moneyness, every asset has some degree of moneyness, this attribute, and the thing that has the most moneyness is what we call money. Do you think that's a useful way of thinking about it? It's, uh, it's definitely useful. And in fact, economists use that to like with the different definitions of broader and broader supplies, you know, like M0, M1, M2. Mm -hmm. So clearly there, like, it's the progression of, well, 
in the U.S. context. The $100 bills, that's clearly got to be money. Uh-huh. And then, okay, but what if you deposit in a checking account and what you have is a pretty solid claim on Citibank? Uh-huh. That's not the same as a $100 bill if I have it $100 in my checking account, uh-huh. but it's still pretty good. And so that's part of M1. Uh-huh. And then, you know, you just keep making it broader and broader. So I think you're right that um, they might use different terms like, like in Menger, it was translated as saleability or some right. people might say liquidity. Yeah. Um, so I, yes, to answer your question, I think you're right. And that's also, again, why even economists themselves have broader, broader, and even Mises, it's not just mainstream economists. Mises talked about money in the narrower sense versus money in the broader sense. And that's how he got into what he called like fiduciary media and stuff, which is, you know, bank notes that are claims on the genuine money. Right. And so, yes, like even he, I think, acknowledges what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. So does fiat currency then fall under fiduciary media? Because it's not, there's not really a, it's not a claim about anything, right? Other than. Right. So, right. In the Misesian framework, uh, they're distinct. So fiat money is just a type of money that's you know not backed by anything. Right. Whereas fiduciary media is an airtight immediate claim on whatever the money is. Like a gold-backed currency. Or, but it could be fiat too. So you can have fiduciary, like right now in the current U.S., fiat dollars are the base money. Yeah. And then banks, commercial banks on top of that pyramid fiduciary media. Right. So you can have fractional reserve banking even with an underlying fiat. Wow. So right. fractional reserve on top of a zero reserve. Which is what, yeah, is what we have right now in the U.S., well, in most major economies. Whereas before, yeah, you could have had gold would be the money and then the banks would issue more tickets claims on the gold than they had in the vault. Wow. So we have pyramid schemes on top of pyramid schemes. Yes. (laughs) Um, All right. Speaking of pyramid schemes, there's a chapter in the book, I think, titled How Do Banks Create Money? Yep. Uh, Are are you talking here about the money multiplier effect? And if so, could you just uh, expand upon that from like a 101 sense. Sure. I, I think this is lost on a lot of people that, um, there's a, um, what would you call this? There's a, a, a magic mm-hmm. that's happening that allows banks to enrich themselves, um, somewhat dishonestly. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would you describe the, the money multiplayer? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and so this is something that I, I, I want to say, I think I even had a PhD in economics where I really understood how this process works. And so that's partly why, yeah, I think it's important to go over the basics. Um, and so, right, just just neutrally, in the, and I will chime in on your, you know, your assessment of, mm-hmm. oh, is this a weird practice or not? But yeah, what happens is there is a legitimate, when I say legitimate, I mean like it's objectively true uh, sense. Of like, in other words, it's not hyperbole. That's what I mean by that to say banks create money in the act of granting loans, at least in our, the way our current system works with fractured, what's called fractional reserve banking. So real bit simply, you know, standard story you hear, somebody puts $100 in their checking account, the bank takes the $100 bill, puts it in the vault, and then if they lend, let's say, 90 to somebody else, um, there's either two ways of thinking about it. Either they just credit the person's account for $90, and like, now that person owes the bank 90 it's rolling over an in interest, right? But now that person thinks he's got 90 in his checking account. And the first guy still thinks he's got 100 in his checking right. account. So there's an extra $90. And that's not like a figure of speech. Like the way we mentioned a minute ago, economists, when they measure M1, right. that just went up by $90. So like objective quantitative measurements of what's the money supply 
can be affected by commercial bank decisions. Um, so that's that's the sense in which they can create money out of thin air. That's what people mean by that. And the bank in that situation has $190 of outstanding liabilities, right? Yep. And in form of depositor liability, right? Man deposits, presumably, but only $100 in underlying assets. Well, in reserves. In so they reserves. have the the assets and liabilities all matched because they have a $90 IOU yes. from the guy who just borrowed it. So their assets are $190. They have 100 cash in the vault. Right. And then that guy owes him 90. So that's 190. Right. And then like you say, the liabilities are the 100 they owe to the original depositor and the 90 that this guy thinks he's got in his checking account. But where's the, so how's, where's the double counting here though? Because it, it, as you say, it's a fractional reserve bank. Right. right. So there's, I, I understand assets and liabilities match on the books, but how is it that a bank run can occur, right? Where a fractional reserve bank, all depositors come at once, mm-hmm. cash us out, there are not actual sufficient assets to meet all those redemption requests, withdrawal requests. So where is, although the bookkeeping might match, where is the actual economic substance mismatching? Yeah, so it's going to be a great question. So it's, even though the assets and liabilities match in the aggregate, mm-hmm. the maturity is different. Mm-hmm. So the way one, you know, they could say uh, the assets are long-term and the liabilities are immediate. Gotcha. And so we're one way of saying is they're they're uh, borrowing short and lending long, right? Is one way of saying it. And so right when if everybody shows up and wants their hundred ninety dollars in our example, no. the bank has one hundred ninety in assets, but ninety of it consists of this IOU that may be a right. thirty it year mortgage. Or yeah, could go yeah. Yeah. but even if it's current, right? The guy might not owe them the money on demand, right? And so he gets to no, I don't owe you this money right now. We talk about. And so that's why the bank is promising people in their checking accounts or what's called demand deposits. Upon demand, we'll give you this money. Right. And so if they take some of that and lend it out into longer term assets that generally have a higher interest rate, that's why they do it because they earn the spread. They can get caught with their pants down. Mm. And so that's so the reason, like in in general, other companies can do that, but with banks, historically they've had special privileges from the government that if they get in trouble and get caught in a situation like that. Either the government literally just relieves their obligations to mm-hmm. let them, well, you know, back in the day they called it suspending specie redemption right. or under FDR hit a bank holiday. Right. What a nice term to say, you can't get your money. Um, and and then, of course, like the whole rationale of central banks, if you go and look at historically why they're from, is to be a lender of last resort. Right. And what does that mean except when the bankers get caught with their pants down, we will come in and rescue them. Right. So that's, you know, this all, that's what you were earlier alluding to. The, yeah, there's something kind of fishy about the whole notion of fractured reserve banking with the the way the accounting like yeah the books balance but it's a weird thing where the very act of get to giving a loan to someone their assets and liabilities go up simultaneously right. that doesn't happen in other businesses normally it's if you move something around it moves around it's not that it yeah you know grows at the same time on both sides of the balance sheet yes yeah, so does that mean that fractional reserve banking is inherently insolvent if it has this maturity mismatch or is it only if the maturities are mismatched that it can effectively be still so normally if if we take insolvent to mean assets or sorry liabilities higher than assets that it's not inherently insolvent but it's inherently illiquid but it would be current liabilities higher than current assets then yes that's zero right yeah, then yeah, it kind of collapses if somebody sh- if they all show up and want their money. Then right. if you can't pay them, yeah, you could be in, you know considered insolvent in that respect. Is it also fraudulent? So here, 
uh, I'm not trying to be wishy-washy, but I, I used to think, no, it wasn't. And then now I'm more open to the, like, I understand the people who are saying it is. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I definitely, I'm confident in saying, following in the tradition of Mises, I think that this practice, uh, causes the boom bust cycle, Mm -hmm. like in the, in the Misesian view. Um, so does that overlay, like to say it has perverse economic consequences, does that map one-to-one onto is a fraudulent practice? Like Horto de Soto thinks, hey, that's not a coincidence, like that I'm arguing this is inherently illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And look, it causes the business cycle. Go figure. Mm-hmm. You know, when humans right. break the rules ethically, bad things happen. Yeah. That's not a separate. So I'm very sympathetic to that. On the other hand, though, like, if people say, oh, come on, everybody knows when you give your $1,000 to the bank, they don't just put it in a drawer with your name on it. Like, mm-hmm. there is a sense in which if it is dishonest, it's, it's weird that most people kind of know what's going on at, at some level. So, But on the other hand, and I'm like flipping back again, when there's a crisis and people go to the bank, what do they say? They'll say, they don't have my money. If they're thinking of it, this is my money I'm letting you store. Right. They're not thinking... They're not honoring the credit obligation that they incurred when I lent them my money. No, you say, no, I put my money in the bank and they lost my money. That's the way they talk. So it's a weird thing where they kind of intellectually know in some sense for the bank to make a profit, they must be lending it out. But on the other hand, they get outraged if they don't have my money. That's a great point because if you someone doesn't make good all along, mm-hmm. they would say, oh, he didn't pay me back. Right. Right. But you're not saying that the bank didn't pay me back. Right. You're saying the bank didn't give me my money. Right. So it's... it's yeah. When you're right. When people, if they buy a CD, yeah. they think I'm lending my money to the bank. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you put your money in a checking account, you're thinking, you know, like the whole nature of it. Like even like the, the old school distinction between um, like a, a checking versus a savings account. Mm-hmm. You know, like you ask somebody, like a regular person back in the day, what, what is the difference? They say, oh, the checking account's like sitting there for my groceries. Saving is like, you know, long-term, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not able to touch it for a while. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, this, everything about it conjures up the idea that the checking account, I mean, it's called a demand deposit. It's supposed yeah. to be available. And so you, you're right. That people don't think, I'm, even though legally speaking, that's the way going back to like yes. a, you know, a ruling back in England or something. Or a creditor to the bank. Right. And you, as soon as you deposit that, yeah, they owe you the money, but it's not, they're not, it's not a bailment contract. Right, 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 right. Uh, you mentioned when banks get caught with their pants down mm-hmm. that they suspend redemption and specie. Now, obviously, we're, we're talking pre-1971 here. Right. Which is uh, they disallowed people to redeem banknotes for gold or silver. Is that fraud? Because I know we're saying, like, well, this for are being fraudulent or not, but, like, when th- there was a contract, right? That's right. Said, right. Here's my gold. Here's my warehouse receipt or bank note. The bank note is used to redeem that money. So when the bank fails to authorize that redemption request, or if the government gives them the bank holidays, we said, right, is that fraud? Is that a, a breach of contract? Well, it's certainly a breach of contract. You know, yeah. whether you want to call it fraud or not, I don't, you know what I mean? Like if I agreed to cut your lawn and I broke my leg and then I say, I'm not going to cut your lawn and I'm not going to give you the money. You gave it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was fraud because maybe I honestly intended to, I agree. you know what I mean? But it's theft or something. Okay. It's certainly a violation of the contract. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely say it's that at the very least. Oh, that's interesting. So there's the intentionality distinguishes fraud from just breach of contract. Or at least I could see somebody arguing that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. But, but yeah, for sure, the, the contract, you know, the understanding was you're depositing 
this, these, you know, notes that are redeemable in gold and they're available upon demand. And then people say, okay, I want my gold back. Just like we said, and then the government came and said, no, they don't have to. And you even saw it like with Silicon Valley bank when they, I mean, it was temporary, but there was a period where a bunch of people had their money on deposit. So it was fiat notes. It wasn't gold, but even there, again, it was the uh, fiduciary layered on top of the fiat. Yes. That Silicon Valley Bank owned owed dollars to more people than they had at the moment. Right. And the government came in and said, everyone stop, hang on, let's get this sorted out. Crazy. And then so our solution to that inherent risk of fractional reserve banking, which we could just call the bank run, mm-hmm. I guess, or the, uh, uh, what, what do we say, current liabilities exceeding current assets. So it was like current insolvency if we're using that sure. term, okay. something like that. Yeah. Our solution to that was lender of last resort, the central bank. So yep. there's people, customers getting fleeced in this one model, fractional reserve bank, and our solution is to have taxpayers get fleeced to solve that problem, right? Because the central bank is then just producing new units of currency, debasing savers, purchasing power to solve the first problem. Is that correct thinking? Yes, um, and but specifically too, like some of the tools. So for one thing, is the central bank you know cartelizes the industry. Mm-hmm. Just just take a step back. Um, if you had just had a regular like, like you know you could have a minarchist state apparatus for, for your listeners who don't understand that terminology. So you know, but standard rule of law, contracts, and so forth, open entry into various businesses. Mm-hmm. You can open up a pizza place. You can open up a bank. If that's the way it worked that even if there weren't explicit um, requirements for 100% reserves, there are arguments in the literature under what would be called free banking that competitive pressures, if any one bank inflated more than its rivals, its vault cash would tend to be moved into the safes of the other banks that were more conservative. So that would tend to limit the inflation of any one bank. Yes. So now you bring in the central bank and it cartelizes the industry. Yeah. So now it lets the banks inflate in unison so that they're not, it's not like a race to the top in terms of the reserve is they can all kind of inflate together so that it's all offsetting claims. And so the, the vault cash doesn't get drained and new entrants can't easily come in because now there's a lot of right. It's very hard to open up a new bank right? and to set your reserve ratio 10 points higher than everybody else and get all the dollars or gold. Right. And so that's a, one way too that the, central bank just by regulating the industry allows for more inflation and it protects individual banks from getting caught but then yes if they do happen to get caught still in a crisis the central bank can more easily just inflate and rescue them and so the, yeah and that redistributes wealth from all the existing holders of the money wow wow Boy. so it's it, what's ironic it's the exact opposite of the rationale given to the public Originally, it was oh, under free banking or wildcat banking, yeah. you would be you'd have notes from Albuquerque, you know, or Acme Bank, and I don't know what this is, and you'd get fleeced. Yeah, you better have the wise central bank coming in to protect the currency, and it's the other way around. That no, the central bank allows for more inflation than would otherwise happen. Right. Yeah, because so in the free banking model, customers can cast a vote of no confidence, right, by withdrawing yeah. money from the bank going to a competitor. So this keeps any individual bank from. Over-issuing those liabilities relative to assets, as we said earlier, right? Yes, but just to be clear, though, it's not even that the customers are like monitoring the banks and being 
and, and like voting again. It's more just if one bank expands, its customers are now able to spend more. So in terms of the interbank clearing that happens like every week, mm-hmm. their customers spend more. Oh, the cash is And so when the banks all settle up with each right. other, on net, there's more outs- so outgoing spending. So the out yes. of the inflating bank. Right. And then that bank becomes less so Right. Their reserves get smaller and smaller, and so they realize we got to slow down. Otherwise, someone's going to just show up and want right, to get right, you know right. two ounces of gold out of their checking account, and we won't have it. So it's another like self-regulating dynamic that we see in many market environments, right? Right. right. That the central bank, the central planning of money, sort of mutes, and then we exactly. get, and then we get right. systemic inflation, right, right, right. Higher terms, or just to be inside baseball, like for some of your list of viewers that in the Austrian school, there's debates over fractured reserve banking, yeah. and so the people who are okay with it are called the free bankers, and they cite right. Mises as one of their heroes because he does write favorably about free banking, like mm-hmm. human action, but in context. He wanted free banking in place as the best way to maintain high reserve ratios. Right. Because he didn't trust the government to prevent the issue of fiduciary media. He said, no, just Just have free banking. And this mechanism we just talked about will keep the banks kind of honest. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it puts the dishonest banks out of business. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Use the word cartelizes. Uh Uh-huh. Could you expand upon that, please? Because I often describe central banking... As a coordinated currency counterfeiting cartel. Right. Cartel is a word that's typically reserved for drug cartels. Yep. Um, what do we mean when we invoke the word cartel to describe central banking? Okay, so I heard a lot when I was younger, and I know I'm older than probably a lot of your viewers, but so cartel also, I used to hear it used in reference to the oil producing countries. Mm. And so like OPEC would be considered, oh, a cartel of the oil producers or exporters, I should say. And so the, the idea being the big, like it's an industry usually where there's just a, a few big players and they all have an agreement with each other to, uh, you know, increase their own profits at the expense of their customers. And usually there's a mechanism that they can keep out upstarts mm. and that's how they maintain their dominant position and sort of like build their customers. Mm. So in the context of banking, what would that mean? Just like we talked about a minute ago that, the banks would all love it if they could all just agree, hey, let's just, you know, it, it's sort of like cutthroat competition if we have this thing where if one of us inflates more. And by inflate, I mean like grant more loans even though there hasn't been more deposits made. Mm-hmm. And so as long as they don't get caught and, they, and the loans get paid back, that increases their revenue. Um, so, but if any one bank tries to do that, the other ones maintain their current posture. That bank, as we said, the reserves get drained. Right. So if they could all get into a room together with me with cigars and say, guys, if we all did this simultaneously, we all get more profit and we don't have these, you know, clearinghouse operations that knock us out. Let's just all agree. What are we going to do? 10%? Okay, let's do that. But they need, if they did that, then some new person could start a bank and have higher reserve ratios than they do. And then they, that guy would get all their reserves. So, so they need a way to keep out. And right now, like I say, there's a lot of regulations. You got to get a lot of capital, a lot of sign-off yeah. to, to open up a new bank. You know, so that that's it helps maintain the cartel. So cartels are built on collusion. Yes, right. And then suppressing competition. Right. Which is also what central banking is doing. Right. Are, do, do central banks collude in how quickly they debase their currencies worldwide? Because it seems like... The inside incentive might be to debase faster than your competitors, but that would be, well, that that wouldn't be um, 
because if you debase your currency faster, you're going to increase net imports, right? Because the currency gets weaker. No, you, you, you want to boost exports, yeah. Net exports, yeah. because the currency gets weaker. So things the country produces are getting cheaper in terms of right. the currencies. So it, it stimulates exports. It also, I guess, would enrich the central bank shareholders a bit more quickly. So debasing more quickly. What To what extent are the central bank cartels coordinated globally or colluding globally, do you think? Um, a lot. I mean, so we, we have some well-known historical examples, and here it's like the the advocates of the policies admit, you know what I mean? So it's not like a conspiracy theory, yeah. like the people who thought it was a good idea. So in the 19th, so after World War I, during World War One, all the major powers, except the U.S., you know, sever their, their countries linked to gold, mm-hmm. or their currencies linked to gold, I should say. And then in the 20s, a lot of them tried to bring it back, including Great Britain. And so it, there was a lot of pressure on the pound that it was overvalued officially. Like, in other words, they were trying to bring it back to the pre-war parity, and it wasn't realistic. Like, they had printed up so many paper pounds. Um, and so a lot of gold was getting drained from the Bank of England vault going over to the Fed. And so the U.S., they just cut, I think Benjamin Strong was the guy running the show, mm-hmm. and he just cut a deal. I forget the guy's name with the governor of the Bank of England uh-huh. to weaken to you know weaken U.S. monetary policy to take the pressure off of Great Britain. Right. And then and this happened like in the mid twenties, and so a lot of people think that's partly why there was the boom in the U.S. that then led to the twenty nine crash. So that's one famous example. Um, I know like during the QE years, there was a lot of coordination between the Fed and the um, ECB and the Bank of Japan and like just again like they wouldn't even have thought it was sinister but like the Bank of International Settlements that's all that's like the banker's bank banker's bank you know triple or something so they all coordinate just because yeah if one central bank announces QE and the other ones don't see that coming that could kind of mess exchange rates up and so they kind of all want to and you're right if if like an agricultural country like if they they have an incentive to debase their currency to promote exports. But then for other countries that are in a similar position, they could say, well, do you want us to do the same thing? We're just going to keep debasing each other. You know what I mean? And we race to the bottom without any gain to our net exports if we just keep. So they do have, you know, strategic considerations like that, that I know that they, they meet and talk to, about. To debase and lockstep rather than uh, right. unexpectedly between each other. Yeah, yeah, right. Because yeah. you, you're going either way. Like if, if one does it, it's just it does have ramifications, you know, from like their people's perspective, but even just from the central bankers' perspective. That yeah, they want to just like you know, if one mob family is going to take out a hit on someone, they might talk to their bosses and be like, "Anyone have any problems? I take this guy out." Right. Okay, you know, right. that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's not uh, that's a pretty apt analogy. Actually. I think so. Yeah, if it is sort of mafioso. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. 
NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Okay, there's another chapter in your book that's discussing a Bank of England paper. I think you said you thought it was from 2014. Yeah. Um, that is denying the loanable funds money multiplier model and perhaps advocating for modern monetary theory. Could you describe what that chapter is about and what I uh, still have a lot of jargon? Sure. Maybe you can help demystify some of that and um, for the audience. Sure. Yeah. So I think that the title of the chapter in my book, Understanding Money Mechanics, is do the economics textbooks get money in banking backwards? It's something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the springboard was the Bank of England put out this publication, I think it was in 2014, where th- they were couching it. I forget how many they had, but they had a bunch of what they called myths mm-hmm. about money and banking. And my perspective was that they're not myths. Like these things that they're saying, oh, you know, standard economics books going back for decades teach that this is how banking works. But now we know that actually it's blah, blah, blah. And what they're saying is very consistent with what the modern monetary theory people are saying. Mm-hmm. And so like in a lot of them, like I know Steve Keen, for example, is running victory laps with that one saying, I can't believe, you know, guys like Greg Mankiw and whatever are still teaching the money multiplier model when even the Bank of England officially, you know, threw in the towel and said, you know, this is like, so look at how unscientific these guys are. That's, mm-hmm. you know, the MMT friendly people, that's their take. So just to give one example of what I did in the chapter, and again, my book was not supposed to be ideological. Like I was trying to present things fairly so anybody mm-hmm. would be willing to give it to a, you know, a class. Um, but just to take one example, so one of the alleged myths was to say that um, the, the, the textbooks treat that, oh, when the central bank, um, like it controls the re- amount of reserves, and if, if there's going to be looser monetary policy, or if more money is going to be created by the system, then that's because the central bank changes policy and they decide they want to ease, they buy more assets that p- pumps more reserves into the system. Now, because the banks have more reserves, given the reserve requirement, at least what well, there used to be when they got rid of that in the US, um, now the banks can legally make more loans. And so that's the way, you know, the central bank is the one who exogenously expands credit or reserves. And then the banks lend more on top of that. And so in the textbook treatment, the Bank of England was saying, it's the central bank that's driving things. But we know in the real world, they say, Mm -hmm. 
it's market demand. Like if businesses, you know, want more loans or consumers are more bullish and are optimistic and they want to, you know, buy bigger houses. And so they apply for larger mortgages. That's what drives the expansion of credit. No uh, committee for a loan committee at a, at a bank says, what's our reserves looking like right now? They don't talk like that. They just look mm-hmm. at the profitability. So that's the argument. Mm-hmm. So I tried to reconcile those two viewpoints to say it depends what you're saying is, is, is being held constant. So if the central bank, if if what its policy is, is to say we want, like in the U.S., the federal funds rate to be 3%, and that's the overnight rate on lending reserves, then it's true if there's a sudden de- increase in demand for bank credit you know, people are applying for more mortgages or whatever. And so then the banks are making more loans, their reserves dwindle. And so that would put pressure up on the federal funds rate because now the banks are scrambling to borrow more reserves from each other because they need to make these loans that are more profitable or not. So then the Fed is going to say, oh, our target was 3%. Market pressure is pushing the federal funds effective rate to four. If we want to maintain the 3% target, what do we do? We got to create more reserves. So we go buy more assets, create more reserves. So there, yeah, it's true that the, you know, so both perspectives have a grain of truth, right? That it was the increased market demand that sort of forced the Fed's hand to create more reserves. But ultimately the commercial banks can't create reserves. The central bank is in charge of that. So that's kind of the, so ultimately the textbooks are right that to get more money creation, the Fed needs to create more reserves and then the banks can lend more on top of that. I mean, that's still true, but they are right that in the day-to-day operations in practice, given that the Fed's not targeting total reserves, but is often targeting an interest rate, it does have the practical implication that, yeah, market demand in a sense drives Mm. reserve creation. So reframing the Fed or the central bank more as a market actor, mm-hmm. but it is a privileged market actor. Right. right. It has a certain mm-hmm. legal monopoly yep. that other market actors don't have. And it is engaged in price fixing no matter which way you look at this, right? It's like you're targeting an interest rate. Yep. Rather than letting the interest rate be determined by the supply and demand of loanable funds. Is that correct? Yes and no, just to clear. So there it's not price fixing in the way that like they could say, oh, we don't want oil to be above $80 a barrel. Mm-hmm. And if we catch anyone trading it, we'll put you in jail. Because mm-hmm. here it, it is in a sense, the supply and demand of reserves, mm-hmm. but they control the supply. Okay. So it's a weird, so, so it's, it's, so they use the supply to back into the, the price target, right? Interest rate they're trying right. to set. And the other thing too, is that that money, you know, in our, from where you and I are coming from yeah. is, is illegitimate, is not sound money. Sure. So that's another reason that it's extra kind of phony or something yeah, yeah. weird fishy about it right. or artificial, let's say. Right. But but right, yes, they're somewhat arbitrary. Yeah, because they could pick within reason any interest rate they wanted yeah. and then just inflate or deflate enough to, to hit it. that. Right. So that is the sense in which they're sort of dictating the answer as opposed to letting genuine market intertemporal right. preferences determine it. Right. But yeah, I think it's more just, so yeah, given that we have this weird system where there's a bunch of officials who pick interest rates, you know, if they were picking the price of oil, everyone would say that's socialism. Yeah. And yet even free market people have no problem with them picking interest rates. Right, right, right. Um, Oh man, it's muddy. How would interest rates emerge on a free market then? Would it just be 
pre-banking, supply and demand of loanable funds, and interest rates mopping up in different regions? Well, yeah, I think the essential thing is where's the money coming from? Yeah. And so I think that's the big fly in the ointment or whatever metaphor you want to use here that the government right now has taken over the production of money. Right. Or a base money. So presumably on a free market wouldn't be on a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard. Yeah, or yes. But yeah, some sort of market uh, based supply of money. And then given that that's what's happening and then right, there'd be no external government intervention in the banking sector and then the interest rates would just be the supply of and demand for that money for different periods of time and right that's where the interest free market interest rates would come from got it so you'd have an interest rate curve for every duration of possible right right okay interesting um says law Mm -hmm. is that where supply creates its own demand that's the way it's it's summarized yeah okay is uh how does that fit into this debate of whether it's Consumers wanting more debt that's pulling the new debt into existence versus um, the banks issuing new debt and consumers taking on that debt. Like, what, how is there a clear line of causality here or is it feedback loop? Like, what is. Um, an interesting question. Let me first explain the historical context and also to give myself time to think of the answer because <laughs> I've, I've never thought of it this way before. But yeah, so historically, says the idea was. J.B. Say was writing on the claims that, oh, there's a dearth of money, and that's why we have a recession. I don't even know if he used the term recession back mm-hmm. then. And so but the idea being that like, oh, you know, the merchants, if you ask any individual merchant, how come business is bad? He would say, oh, because my customers don't have enough money. If they had more money, they could buy more of my stuff and mm-hmm. business would be brisk. Duh. And so that it seems like, oh, if there's a general downturn, it must be because there's not enough money. Uh, and so what Say was pointing out was that well no that's not that's a very superficial analysis like if you look at the difference between a rich nation and a poor nation it's not because the rich nation has more currency mm-hmm. it's that you know they're producing more mm-hmm. and and that you know ultimately if the if the baker wants more shoes how does he it's not just that he gets enough money it's ultimately you know he has to make more baked goods mm-hmm. and that's the means by which he can buy the shoes and so that's you know everyone's making more if everyone's more productive, they have more stuff to then trade with each other, and the money is just sort of like a thing that facilitates the transactions. It's not driving the prosperity. So that so that was a sense in which he said supply creates its own demand, meaning if everyone just produced twice as much stuff, don't worry, prices would figure out a way for us to trade. It's not that, oh, no, too bad we don't have any money, or we don't have more money, otherwise all these goods will rot on the shelves. The right. prices would just adjust. That was the idea. So in this context, yeah, if the idea is, um, I guess you'd say, oh, we could have all of this saving and investment if only interest rates were high enough. I, I think that's the wrong way of, of looking at it. That no, if we, if you had genuinely productive people and we had all this capital we were producing, mm-hmm. like prices would adjust so we could use it. Well, like if you know aliens showed up and gave us all this advanced machinery and stuff, it's not that we would say, oh, but too bad you know, interest rates are at the right level and we don't, and, you know, the Fed, like for us to be able to use this stuff that, that yeah. no, we would figure out a way to incorporate that into our production structure. Right. Yeah. The first example you gave stripping to is kind of foundational to Keynesian economics, right? That, right. Well, the problem is there's not enough money. So just yeah. produce more money. 
yeah, that's what's interesting. Which that greases the gears a little bit. That's why it has that stimulative yeah. effect, but it's it's not. You don't want an actual higher quantity of money. You want higher quantities of goods and services, right? And increasing the quantity of money does not directly increase the quantity of goods and services, right? Yeah, it's a weird thing where any individual, yeah, if you double the amount of money he had, he's going to be wealthier, sure. Yeah. But if you did that, because strictly speaking, what's happening- Colorado would do Yeah, is he's just redistributing from everybody else. Yes. But it's, you know, it's it's a drop in the lake. Yeah. So other people don't feel poorer. Yeah. But he's walking around thinking he's twice as rich. Right. But yeah, if you did that with everybody, clearly it's not that everyone would have twice as many cars and houses just because we printed up double the money supply it's just prices would rise is that very simple kind of first order thinking how we got into this keynesian mess it's like you know it's funny because like i said so jb say i mean he was definitely 1800 i can't remember exactly when he was writing um showing whereas keynes's general theory is 1936 right so clearly these attitudes that we now call keynesian were around for a lot of time. And it's a, you're right. It's a very simplistic diagnosis to look around and say, Oh, well, geez, the, if the, these people just had more money right. to spend, the people would be wealthier. And so well, that would just, that's how you jumpstart the economy. Um, so sophisticated Keynesians would say, Oh no, we're aware of all the stuff you guys are talking about. And, and yes, there's says law, but says law doesn't apply when there's not full employment. And so they would come up with, but I think, the general support for Keynesian policies is based on that primitive, so you know, intuition that really is just wrong. And on top of that, like we can keep going back. Like when the Keynesians come back with their, oh, here's why your simplistic, you know, two econ two hundred one analysis is wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, I can come back with an econ three hundred one and say, okay, well, you're trying to say doesn't right. work either. And then there are massive incentives to enshrine that pseudoscience of Keynesian economics as true economics, because then that gives government and central bank the academic justification to engage in the central yeah. planning of money. So they'll they'll promote the Keynesians and you know block out the Austrian sort of dynamic. Yeah, I yeah I do not think so because yeah, a Keynesian would say, oh, how can we won you know in the marketplace of ideas? Mm-hmm. Like you know, nobody's an Austrian. I mean, it's not. Yeah. There are more Austrians now than there were ten years ago. So I think even on their own terms, yeah. the financial crisis and stuff, people are realizing that Keynesian paradigm is not is bankrupt. But right, I don't think it's a coincidence that higher academia, which is funded mm-hmm. by governments mm-hmm. um, and certainly central banks, like, it, it's not it's not even a sinister thing. Because why would you go and work for an organization if you thought it shouldn't exist? Right. You know, I mean, sure. other things equal, most people who go work for a central bank think at least if it has the right policies, it would be a force for good. Yeah. If you are an Austrian, you're going to be miserable. Just you're going to be depressed. Why would you want to work for them? Of course. Of course. It would be like Luke Skywalker, you know, working for the Empire. There's, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a bit too metaphysical, but it seems like... The theft that occurs through central banking, right, central planning of money, the debasement of currency, then seems to be, to maintain its legitimacy, it needs to fund the lie that it is academically supported and scientifically true that centrally managing the money supply is the right way to run an economy. So you get this weird interplay of like theft and lying. And then you could also bring in the war piece, right? The central bank's yep. got a deep history of war. So it's there's a weird metaphysical connection here. I don't. 
you well, yeah well yeah so for sure there's a definite symbiotic relationship like why do central banks exist well and one answer is because the governments gave them you know the statutory mm-hmm. authority why do they do that what's in it for the the government well because clearly the central bank funds their efforts like mm-hmm. in modern times that manifests itself that they like the like the fed buys a lot of treasury debt mm-hmm. and so if you just think through the mechanics of that the fed in a sense so the the treasury oh we we, we want to spend two trillion more than we take in mm-hmm. and a trillion of it we borrow from the general public including you know foreign governments and stuff but the other trillion rather than borrowing that from the public too which would raise interest rates on treasuries the fed will just create a trillion dollars now they go through the secondary market so it's not as naked but it's yeah. you know the same effect when the dust settles that the fed creates an extra trillion to take a trillion more treasuries onto its books mm-hmm. and so but it's it's more than that because now the interest payment also you say oh but the treasury still has to pay interest so they pay interest to the fed mm-hmm. the fed pays its bills including the dividends to its shareholders which are the private banks which is and some people think is weird that yep private banks own the fed literally and then whatever's left over, they remit to the treasury. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice little racket where the Fed creates money out of thin air to lend to the treasury. And then when the pre- treasury pays interest on that, most of that comes right around is income to the... Tre- so and so that that's, you know, that's a nice little system. And then, yeah, they have a lot of academic jargon. I don't know if people remember this, but before the financial crisis of 2008, the Fed was like real boring. Yeah, and it was only after QE that like Ben Bernanke had to go on sixty minutes and explain, oh no, no, this is fine. We can turn it off like that and better. Right. So like it was just a real boring, arcane. Like who cares? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that was serving the interest of that racket, right? Yeah, boring, arcane, uh, mystified. I guess to some extent, they still mystify it. It's ob- right. I remember a lot of this right. organ MMT, etc. Um. Could, could I just mention one thing? When it is what, is what struck me about how little the public understood, it was in I think September of two thousand eight. It was when the Fed came in. You know, there was a financial crisis. The Fed came in, uh, took over AIG, and I think they I think it was eighty five billion. And so Bernanke was at some you know emergency meeting in Washington with some people, and I think Barney Frank was at the table. You know, and he was like on the Ways and Means Committee or whatever, and asked him. Where did you get the eighty-five billion mm-hmm. to do this? Mm-hmm. And Bernanke said, "We're the Fed. We have eight hundred fifty billion. Of course, he has like you know infinity. Like mm-hmm. he just multiplied mm-hmm. by ten just to make the point. Mm-hmm. But that when I read that newspaper's account, I realized, whoa! Even Barney Frank did not realize how the Fed worked up until this. You know what I mean? Right. Like was right, still right, thinking, right, right, right. if you're going to spend eighty-five billion, it must have come from somewhere. Where? Who's? Did you take it from my budget? Where'd you get it from? You know, and not realizing, no, they can just create it. Yeah. And so I think that's when, like, because it is kind of mystical. Yeah. You just create it? Well, we literally, I mean, we invoke a mystical term when we describe it. We say they print money out of thin air. Right, right, right. Yes, right, right. But I actually think that sort of belies the truth a little bit because it's not, it's not something coming from nothing, right? The something, the, the purchasing power is actually coming from somewhere. Yes. Being stolen from savers. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that because I I know people who don't like that phrase because they think it's legitimate and they think you're be we're being unfair by making it sound like it's magic. Well, no, it's just standard you know, accounting and blah, blah, blah. But I get what you're saying yeah. too. If the magician can pull a you know, a rabbit out of thin air, right. 
you're not worried about what pet store did you just steal that rabbit from? Right. Like, no, I created it from you know the vacuum of the universe. Exactly. <laughs> but if you knew he just took it from a pet store, then you'd be like, wait a minute, yes. did that guy give you permission to take that? And if the magician actually could pull rabbits from a hat, presumably the price of rabbit meat would go to zero, right? Right. The thing that'd be non-scarce, but it's not. That's not how reality works, right? The purchasing power has to come from somewhere. And um, yeah, it's it's a real scam. Um, okay, I want to get back to MMT though. Okay. Because you have, I guess first, would we say that MMT is at least descriptive of the monetary system the way it works now? Mm-hmm. And then you also said you have a critique of MMT. So kind of a two-part question. Is it descriptive of the way things work? Because that's... I commonly say that it's total bullshit. And I want people come back to me like, no, 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 it's just a description of the way things are. I'm like, maybe that's sort of true. Um, But I think it's also worthy of being critiqued heavily. So would love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay, sure. So you're right that it it was a brilliant rhetorical move that the MMT people do. So I debated Warren Mosler years ago. And, you know, if you go in the comments, all the MMT people say, oh, he wiped the floor with Murphy. Murphy's objections, eh, I just, I wish there was gold was money, and it's not, eh, like that's how they, and, and it, hey, Warren's not saying it's good or bad, he's just saying this is how modern money works, mm-hmm. deal with it, just like if you didn't like gravity, boo-hoo, you know, um, and so that I think is misleading, because there's a lot of things that they do in the MMT uh, literature, let's call it, that when you it's very misleading at, at the least all right so just i'll give one a quick example so recently stephanie kelton who's now one of the leading mmt people um she on twitter she came across somebody tweeted out um you know like some republican budget hawk or somebody was warning about all the red ink that the u.s government was you know running up and how are our grandkids gonna pay you know that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and so she retweeted that and she had a chart showing private sector surplus federal deficit and they were mirror images of each other mm-hmm. that we you know the deeper the federal government went into budget deficit the steeper was the private surplus of the or whatever net financial asset and they can they have all these accounting tautologies mm-hmm. to show that government deficits equal private sector surplus mm-hmm. and so but when you unpack what that means like yeah there's certain ways you can use the terminology that's a true statement but it makes it sound like they're saying people in the private sector can't save and get ahead unless Washington runs a deficit. And that's clearly not true. Right. And in right. fact, when you unpack, what do you mean? All it means is if we draw a mental line around the private sector, like if you have a bond from GE, that's not net saving because you saved a thousand, but they lent you a thousand or they borrowed a thousand. So it cancels out. Right. Whereas if the government borrows money from us and then spends it, we have the money now, right? And they owe us the money. And since we're having the government be a separate sector, right? Oh, our net private sector is now wealthier by a billion dollars if the government. But then you right. say, okay, but what good is having that asset? Because how are they going to pay us the billion? Is it, oh, they're going to point a gun at us next week, right? Take the billion from us in taxes and say, oh, there's a billion we owe you. So how does that make it? So why is that? An, it's not really an asset, right? Or if they just print it, that debases. So the idea is. Given that you have somebody owing you a thousand dollars, you would much rather be a private sector person that has to go produce something voluntarily, right? Not someone who can literally rob you and your neighbors or just print it to give it to you, right? That that's so they're using the same terminology of financial asset, but it's qualitatively different, right? So that's the kind of thing I mean where 
yeah, technically there's a way they can define those terms that the accounting is correct, but it's extremely misleading. And this is a uh, an accounting optical illusion, right? Because as you said, under that uh, transaction, assets go up a billion. But the reality is you just had a circular flow of financial, a circular financial flow and no new goods, services, capital, anything in the economy, right? So isn't it just just an accounting trick? I mean, I think so, yes. And like I said, they're like, provably so. Like, you do the transaction, yeah. and they're like, okay, look around. Is, is there any new equipment, new car? Like, was anything produced by this? Like, no, we just... Yeah, so I mean, in fairness, I think they would come back and they would say, oh, no. Or they would say, in general, but that's true of all accounting. Like, just because you buy a bond from GE, they might not do something productive with it. How do you know? You know, but so there, it would push the argument back to, okay, you're right. I think private businesses have an incentive to use capital more wisely mm -hmm. and productively than Washington. Right. So it was, but again, they weren't like, we're now taking the debate into new ter terrain. Right. Whereas they are resting on the accounting tautologies and saying, no, this is just math. Right, right. Sorry, you guys don't like math. Boo hoo. You know, and it's like, well, no, no, no. You're smuggling a lot of, uh, you know, implications into that, that the math does not hold up. Yes. And is this stuff, is it related to, the different accounting treatment we give governments relative to private businesses? Um, so I, on this particular question, yeah, I think part of the, the trick it was just by defining and just saying, oh, let's, let's call the government separate. Cause I was saying you could do the exact same thing, like in their models, like they have G. I said, what if I take G to mean Google? Right. And I can make the same true statement that, Hey, it's good if Google runs a deficit right. because the rest of the world minus Google can only gain net financial assets if Google loses money. And the question is, how <laughs> could Google run it on a perpetual deficit without the capacity to steal? Right. And what would it do? Right. It would deplete all of its capital yeah. and go to business. And that, it's funny you say that because I, I did have some other... So I will say lately, I've met some MMT people that are like not as famous as the icons. And like I could have regular conversations with them mm -hmm. in a give and take. And so there, you're right. They do admit... Well, yeah, private like banks or whatever they could they could become leveraged and they could be net debtors, and they say and they say, oh, but that's like a Hyman Minsky. It's unstable, mm -hmm. and so that's why you want to concentrate the debt issuance in the hands of the government. But again, the reason the government's stable is because they can ultimately just stick guns in you or a no. printing press, you know, electronically. So it's yeah, it's stability gained because they can just steal it. You know what I mean? Like you know. Hey, it's good to lend money to the local mobster because you know he's going to pay you back because he'll ultimately break people's kneecaps. <laughs> yeah. That actually isn't good for the community. Right. To like say we should run all our savings through the mobster, therefore, because we know we're getting paid back. Like that doesn't follow. Yeah. That doesn't make the community richer. This is why I've, I've described in the past that uh, government bonds and really fiat currency, I think, too, is backed by the anticipated future cash flows from taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So, like the anticipated future proceeds of stolen purchasing power effectively. And um, I don't know, I, that where the rubber meets the road, that doesn't seem to be discussed often enough with it by MMTers, right? They don't like to yeah. admit that. Yeah, in my experience when I, it's weird because some of them, they don't want, like Warren Mosler, at our, we debated at Columbia, um, he volunteered the analogy. He said, yeah, it'd be like if I get, if I, um, what did he say? If I had like these little coupons, um, that like if you did chores for me, I'd give you these coupons, like the you know Mosler units or something. 
you know, if you if you picked up the trash or if you know you went and got me a drink and I give you, and you might say, well, why would I work for these things? And he goes, oh, because what if and we were like in an auditorium, and he said, what if I tell everyone here that I have my uh, henchman standing outside with a gun, and when you try to leave here, you are not allowed to leave unless you hand over ten of these Moser units, and then you're going to have to get them right. And he wasn't like he he knew it was like in an, like a fun example and like would catch people's attention if they were dozing off. Right. But he offered that, you know what I mean. And so, so I kind of just you know pointed out in my summation, like right. you know he I'm not the one bringing in ideology. He's a, like, is that really what you? But again, see how I played to the hands like the online critics were saying. Oh, Murphy, he admits Moser's right. That's how the world works. Murphy just doesn't like it because right. he doesn't like his coercion. You know, so yeah. it was just. It was very effective rhetorically where he just head on stipulates, oh, yeah, there's there's gun backing it up, so what? That's how the world works. Right, right, right. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. And isn't it just a cop out? I mean, because, right, well, I concede the point. Sure, it's very descriptive, but shouldn't we be debating and talking about the things that we're trying to fix here? Not just be like, oh, well, let's just, what? I mean, we, we did that in the sphere of technology. We'd never accomplish anything, right? Like, well, humans can't fly. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, yes, and also they don't, they don't follow their own advice because MMTers are full of policy advice. You know, they want to have a green, depending on who you're talking about, like a job guarantee, green new deal, single payer health insurance. So they have all these proposals, you know what I mean? So they're not afraid of completely changing the way our government works. Yeah. So how come I'm not allowed to say that's a crappy monetary system? Let's have hard money or, you know, get government out of it altogether and let the market choose. Some people right. want to use gold. Some people want to use crypto. Let's let them decide. But uh, no, you you can't. You know that's utopian. You can't. You know, okay. Well, I think single payer is utopian. All right, I'll send send the Green New Deal. So, so tricky. Um, okay. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, 
you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. You had mentioned that post-2008, you were one of the guys thinking CPI would hit double digits after we printed, what, $700 billion, something like that, in 2008. Um, And that didn't happen, right? So post-2008, inflation... CPI specifically right in, I don't know, somewhere mid-range, you know better than I. However, post-2020, we had another massive uh, economic shock and subsequent quantitative easing, this time to the tune of, I think, six-plus trillion in the U.S., you know, close to 10x what it was in 2008. And this time we did hit, I think we hit double-digit CPI. We definitely had high CPI in the U.S., what was the difference, I guess, in the nature of the, the quantitative easing slash money printing that occurred in 2008 versus 2020? And what did you guys get wrong post-2008 that yeah. you got right post-2020? Yeah, so just to be clear, I wasn't running around in 2010-ish calling for hyperinflation. I did have a specific bet, though, with two economists saying I thought the official CPI would break double digits because it had done so back in the late or the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s in that period. So the, you know, that was something that the government did occasionally admit could happen. Um, and then, as you say, after COVID, it, it did. And the guys like Paul Krugman had egg on their faces. And what I noticed was like guys in my camp were making fun of him saying, well, gee, they printed a bus- bunch of money. What did you think was going to happen? Uh, and I would say, OK, guys, but guys like me were saying that, you know, back in 2010 and it wasn't as obvious. So I think um, a couple of key differences is that. Um, in 2008, there was the financial crisis, so a lot of it, like um, the money market mutual fuzzy and one broke the buck and so forth. And so there was a, a huge rush to hoard uh, dollars, and so people were even pulling money out of mutual funds and putting them into checking accounts. And, and the FDIC limit got bumped up from 100k to 250k too. Right. And so what you see, if you look at the data, you saw M1 spiked in like 2009, 2010, but M2 didn't. It it, it increased, but. If you just looked at a chart of M2, you wouldn't have known something crazy happened in 2008. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you looked at M1, it was like, gee. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Whereas post-COVID, both M1 and M2 shot through the roof. So I think that's one way of seeing that in 2008 and you know the subsequent years, there was a rearrangement of the composition of money holdings mm-hmm. as opposed to just a huge ballooning of their overall supply. Mm-hmm. Whereas in post-COVID, no, it no matter how you measured it, it went up. So I think that 
and maybe another way of getting at that is saying post 2008, the demand to hold money increased sharply because it was a financial crisis. People were panicked about their money, wanted to reward their money because they didn't know what was going on with the financial system. Mm. Whereas with COVID, yeah, they were freaked out about COVID, but you know they were kind of forced to stay home. It, you know, so it it wasn't as. Uh, and then once it opened up again, people weren't worried about the banks going down. Mm. They were eager to go spend the money and. It was more broad-based. That was another huge difference that the right. stimulus checks and the unemployment insurance and all that, it was more, it, as I think you said before, like a helicopter drown as opposed to the earlier one was more about recapitalizing the banks. Right. And so that's just another obvious reason that, because one the last thing I'll say on it is prices did shoot up after the rounds of QE. But it showed up in financial assets. Right. It was like the price Asset of inflation. Yeah. Right. Whereas, so I mean, it kind of makes, I mean, it, it's a bit simplistic, but yeah. if you give the money to a bunch of people in the financial sector, they buy financial assets. If you give it to all the consumers, they go out and buy eggs and gasoline. Right, right, right. So, right, right. That makes sense. Did the uh, lockdown slash supply chain interruptions, business closures, did this have an effect as well that that contracted the output of goods and services you've got more dollars chasing less goods and services yeah yes I, I think that certainly exacerbated it that yeah. you know it's uh two forces pushing in the same direction for sure yeah but that's also why i was so confident and it turned out to be erroneous because the obama administration they were doing all kinds of you know raising taxes uh you know threatening severe you know like a carbon tax taking over health care yeah. or health insurance. So, I mean, there was a lot of supply-restricting policies getting put in place right when all the QE was hitting. Right. So, yeah, I just thought, well, yeah, they're dumping in a bunch of money and they're restricting supply. How could CPI not go up? Right. And Eli, so. And so the blind spot was a lot of that capital had to flow into the bank's balance sheet to to recapitalize. Yeah, yeah. so I just, but the specific mistake that I personally made, I can't speak for others who, yeah. you know, were a bit erroneous in their warnings. Um, is yeah, because I knew like one change they made was in October of 2008, the Fed started paying interest on reserves. Mm. So in effect, they were paying the bankers not to make loans to their customers, mm. even when they were telling the public, hey, we hate to bail out Wall Street, but we got to keep money flowing to Main Street. Mm -hmm. Well, they literally started paying Wall Street to not make loans to Main Street. Wow. But so that was one thing. But I accounted for that, I thought, because I was looking at saying, no, M1 is still going. In other words, yeah. The base is going through the roof. Like Glenn right. Beck and stuff was, you know, doing shows on showing what the monetary base yeah. was doing with, you know, that's QE. But it, M1 was going up, meaning money in checking account balances. Yeah. So that's why I thought enough of this is flowing through into the public. But then, like I said, I didn't look at like M2 to realize people's over. Oh, this kind of goes back to what you said at the start of this episode about moneyness that people had varying degrees of assets of, or assets of varying degrees of moneyness. And they were just concentrating on things that were more money and more liquid, yeah. And so it, their overall financial holdings weren't skyrocketing. Right. It was just they were getting rid of stuff that was less liquid and concentrating it. And I was just focused on those narrow measures right. zooming up, thinking, oh, wow, there's a bunch more money in the system, not realizing, no, it's more of a reallocation rather than just a pumping up. Got it. So there's additional liquidity coming into the system, but there's additional demand for liquidity, right. like reservation demands, right. sort of offsetting some of it. And then the distributions also to the financial layer. So we actually did see the inflation that you, that you predicted, just not at the consumer price level, it's at the asset level, basically. Right, yeah. yeah. Or, and another way of looking at it too is, 
the C- CPI did fall a little bit in November of 2008. Mm-hmm. So I think if there hadn't been QE, consumer prices would have kept falling. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which relative to that alternate universe. Right. But but I'm not trying to get out of the fact that I lost. the. When I said double digit, I meant in absolute terms. I didn't yeah. mean relative to the counterfactual. Yeah. So I was wrong, but I'm just explaining. It's not that I was wrong for thinking more money means higher prices. Other yeah. things equal. It's just I miscalculated what the other things equal was going to do. Right, right, right. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Uh, okay, maybe just one last sort of broad question here. There's a lot of political turmoil going on in the world. Uh-huh. Uh, the specter of armed conflict seems to be escalating. We had the Russia-Ukraine, now there's things going on in the Middle East. Um, presumably that means more money printing is on the horizon. Um, people shifting their safe haven asset of choice. Seems like treasuries are being sold off. U.S. treasuries are being sold off pretty rapidly now. Mm-hmm. Gold's been pumping, Bitcoin's been pumping. Um, where, what's your economic outlook on where we are headed? And I guess say short run, short term, medium term. And then if it's possible to work in the possible implications of AI okay. or other technological innovation on all of this economic outlook. Sure. So I'll try to jam it all in into a very concise answer. Um, so in the very near term, I've been saying I think there's going to be a recession in the U.S. that will start either late 2023 or early 2024. They might not call in real time. It might take, you know, a lag for them to look back and say, oh, this recession began in, you know, January of 2024. It might be that kind of a deal. It's just because the yield curve has been so deeply inverted. And that ties in, again, to the understanding money mechanics. I explain all that. Mm-hmm. That dovetails with standard Austrian business cycle theory, that mm-hmm. well-known phenomenon of, the yield curve seems to predict an impending recession. So I think that's a good indicator. And that thing has been flashing red for a while. Yeah. So I, I do think a recession's coming. Um, you're right with all the, I mean, it seems clear that the U.S. government certainly is not doing what it could to bring peace to Russia and Ukraine or the Middle East. Like it seems like, the, you know, they decided to who they're going to back and then let's stoke the conflict if anything. Um, and I think that's partly because they know the fundamentals are so bad. Hey, a war would kind of take the public's mind off the magnum, how bad the economy is. You know, that's my cynical interpretation. Yeah. Longer run. However, I actually am very optimistic because of, um, AI. I think even if they like the stuff it can do like, like an Infidio, our chief technology officer, he, you know, periodically we have a, you know, sessions and he just shows me the stuff and it, it keeps impressing me about just even the current level of, you know, chat GPT and they have other things now where you can show it an image and just say, what is this? And it can tell you, it's, it's pretty complex, like, like visual recognition. So as that stuff all gets integrated, even if it doesn't get any better, if it just stays how it is right now, like for certain businesses that have like telecommuters, um, in a, in a sense, it's like, oh, you could get a thousand employees, I'm making this up, who have a IQ of 110 mm-hmm. that work for, you know, $2 an hour and don't ever have to sleep and they don't ever make a basic mistake. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. not every business could use that. Like, right. you know, you can't do that to pump gas. Right. But there's plenty of businesses that could tap into a labor supply like that for those kind of numbers. And a lot of knowledge. 
Right. Uh, so again, they don't have physical hands. They yeah. can't move stuff in the warehouse. Yeah. But any employee that who could just be communicating text back and forth or even images now, it's like I said, it's impressive how much you could automate, like just you know making wills and all kinds of legal analysis and even medical diagnoses at some point. So I just think it, lots of businesses just need to sit down and figure out how can we use this, and it's going to take a, a learning curve to figure it out. But I think in a sense, it's almost like a billion new employees are just going to land on planet Earth in the virtual space wow. who don't need much to survive and who don't, you know, and who don't have a bad attitude. Wow. <laughs> so there's a sense in way, yeah, that's going to upend certain sectors. Some people are going to be thrown to work. But in general, like, I think that's the way people aren't looking at it right, like to realize the potential of this. Right. And that sounds bad, right? Job destruction. But if we look out historically... That's how we advance, actually. Right. right. We we free our hands up. We free our minds up from doing uh, a lower value add task, so we can focus on something that's higher value add. Right. That the is it Schumter creative destruction. Yep. Yep. Or even I mean, just I'm trying to get different analogies for like we have we have kids coming up. Do we want them to be smarter or stupider? Oh, it could, what if the kids are real smart? Then they'll throw us all out of work. Nobody thinks like yeah, that. Right. So if we have a bunch of, you know, tools that are AI, like, yeah. would you want a calculator that doesn't make a math error or that makes mistakes all the time? Right. It, so to have an AI that, you know, can do more stuff, that's that's going to be good for the community. Yes. Yeah. The one person's job who gets thrown out, is, it hurts you narrowly there. But to the, if it's doing that all over, mm-hmm. then, you know, everything's going to get so cheap. Yes. That exactly. the fact that you might have to take a different job that pays less per hour in the short term, but if everything gets cut in half in prices, you still end up with more purchasing power. Right. This is where, I don't know if this is axiomatic per se, but if a technology is successful on the marketplace, and let's just assume it's an actual free market, Mm -hmm. it's almost by definition putting humanity in a better situation, right? It's Otherwise, it wouldn't have succeeded, right? So as people express their plans and preferences, they did that by buying the thing, Mm-hmm. And so if that if, if that technology put you out of work, right. all right, that's a local market dislocation that occurred, but it's actually a net benefit to everyone. It may have hurt you in the short run, but you shouldn't be, you know, fighting it. What, when factories used to come out, right? Went the Italian shoemakers and burning down the factories and all. Yes, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's actually like no, you should embrace technological progress even if it upends your present financial trajectory or or, sorry career trajectory right like another famous example is when they automated the um the phone lines and there used to be all the women who would like okay hang on connecting you and like all those all all those people got thrown out of work but it's not that right now we're lamenting the loss of all those like people don't even think of that as a job of course so yeah yeah it's that's what technology is doing is freeing us from drudgery so we should celebrate these things yeah i mean my vision for ai like People have different things about, oh, there's Terminator. But like, think of Tony Stark in the Iron Man movies, if you've seen that, where he's talking, was it called Jarvis? Like the thing that's, when he's like how much more productive he is in creating stuff because he's got this AI that's helping him. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's what people in the not too distant future can be doing in their own homes. Like I say, just like the stuff that this guy in my company was showing me, like it was just doing research and we're like, it's, it's next level. Yeah. About, it's like having a bunch of assistants working for you. Yeah, that's incredible. Exciting to see where that goes. Bob Murphy, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Robert. Great to see you in person. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, probably go to Twitter at Bob Murphy Econ, 
And then uh, our company is at Finio.ai. Awesome. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Robert.